welcome to One Day Contract, the Panthers Talk Show, where each week we're joined by a new personality who we've signed to a one-day contract to join the show. One Day Contract is a proud part of the Riot Network. Follow us on Twitter at the Riot Network to stay up to date on all of your favorite pods. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and love us wherever you get your podcasts. My name is Nikki Wolf. Joining me as always, Josh Klein, editor-in-chief for the Riot Report, and is just trying to find the right fit to come in for the hashtag vet men. That's right. Everybody, you know, it's like hard to keep up on Twitter. We just, it's like everybody's getting cut out there. And it's like, I'm looking for somebody to come in for the following three things. A team-friendly deal. We can kick the tires on somebody. Uh, maybe like a change of scenery for somebody who really do somebody good and then bring them in for the vet men. And then it's just rocket emojis all the way for 2021. Panthers are one player away as long as they come in on the vet men. There you go. There you go. I like, I like you're starting off with a lot of positivity. It seems like in the beginning I'm a very positive guy. I'm feeling great right now. My top shot portfolio is through the roof. Game stock is oh. going up. So it's like, I mean, what, what's not to like, what a, what a beautiful day in the neighborhood it is. Yeah, you just keep nerding out over there. That's what I do. At least there's not a former defensive lineman on the show to uh, dunk on me two minutes into the show. So uh, I feel like our, our guest today may, may think I'm a nerd, but he probably couldn't beat me up as easily. Probably could beat me up, I'm sure. I bruise like a peach. We'll have him flex later so we can compare arms. How about that? Let's bring in our, our other cohort here, Colin Hoggard, columnist and contributor for the Right Report, and number one Engelbert Humperdinck fan. Colin, how are you? I'm doing well. I've been searching through social media mentions just to see if any Panthers have, have hearted an emoji of a guy that has been recently cut, maybe something like that, just something to get us some real quality intel into our lives. Haven't found anything yet, though. Sorry. I'm loving the I'm loving the social media content where uh, Matt Rule was specifically asked today about Teddy Bridgewater unfollowing the Panthers on social media, and Matt Rule said, "I don't know. I, he didn't unfollow me." So it's like this is where we're at now: is that quarterbacks not unfollowing the head coach, but unfollowing the team? Big deals. It's it's 2021. It's the best year. Loving it. I think I went negative immediately. Did I get negative already? A little bit. Yeah, it's alright. It's just good to see that Could the world of football is just as adult as the rest of the country, apparently, when it comes to social media. Let's bring on our guest on the one-day contract this week, Robert Mays, host of the Athletic Football Show podcast, NFL writer for The Athletic, and as a Bears fan, probably has some thoughts about trading into the top two for a quarterback. Welcome, Robert. I have a lot of thoughts on all sort of avenues for quarterback acquisition because I spend most of my waking hours thinking about them. Yeah, um, whenever they talk about trading up for a quarterback, I don't. I know we usually don't jump into football this fast, but it's like they're obviously the Bears and Trubisky are like the, the the cautionary tale. But across the board, it doesn't look good when you trade up for a quarterback. Trading up for a quarterback is okay. I, that to me is not an issue. Uh, I think that's the one position I probably would trade up for. So if you're a Carolina and you're dead set on getting a quarterback and you have to move from eight to three to do it, if you really like the guys and you're ensuring that you like two of the guys who would possibly be there, I, I think that's okay. I think that is the one time where throwing away some draft capital for one single player can be worth it. Yeah. I just feel like you look in the past. Sorry, Colin, you, you have, a, when you look in the past, it just hasn't worked aside from Mahomes, It had, when you go up and get a guy, it's like Jared, it turns out to be Jared Goff or uh, Mitch Trubisky or, um, Who's my other terrible example in the past three years of, of going up and getting somebody? But it just I think seems that like says more about the quarterbacks that haven't worked out than it says about trading up for a quarterback. Okay, that's what fair. I would look say. I, I think it's more about the guys who've been available over the last decade than it is the idea of trading up for a quarterback. If there are four quarterbacks that you think are franchise-level guys and you have the eighth overall pick and you are certain – or not so you can't be certain, but you feel really good – about the two guys who would be left if you were to trade up to three, that value proposition is worth it to me. I think the idea of trading up for a quarterback is fine. I think that we've just seen a lot of quarterbacks drafted in the top 10 fail recently, and I'm not sure that has anything to do with the more general principle of trading for one. I'm not sure why Josh decided to cut the middle out of this cake, but can we pull back before we get all the way into the, uh, the draft discussion <laughs> here? Robert, welcome to the show. Hey, Wonderful to have that's you. Why, yeah, that's why you're good at this. 
I want to, I want to talk, it, 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 we talked so much here in Charlotte, you know, about, about our team, but I'm curious from a national perspective, what do you see, uh, you know, when you think of the Carolina Panthers, what do you currently think of the team, but also specifically about our new owner, uh, Mr. David Tepper? I think that, you know, everything that he has said seems to be interesting. You know, I've asked around about what it kind of feels like in the building and it, I've gotten pretty decent reviews from some of the people that I've asked about there. So it does seem like they're trying to do different things. They're trying to be a little bit more aggressive. They're trying to do some things that are a little bit more prog- more progressive than they've been in the past decade or so when Jerry Richardson was still there, everything else. So I think on that side of it, things are interesting. From the football side of things, I'm just a little confused about what they're trying to accomplish and how. You know, last year when they decided to sign Teddy Bridgewater to what seemed like a bridge deal, and that made sense, I guess, in the abstract, it's like, all right, we don't have a quarterback. This is how we could figure out the quarterback position over the last couple of years, but then you, or the next couple of years, then you've heard everything about how aggressive they intend to be to find a new quarterback this year. So if that was the case, then what was the point of signing Bridgewater? And you, you won just enough games to get the eighth pick and not the third pick when it seemed like tearing it all the way down might've been a smarter way to do this. So it just feels like they haven't had a real clear vision for how they wanted to handle last year into this year. And it's left them more in the middle than is probably beneficial at this stage of their trajectory. And I would ask as a follow-up um, to that, because I've heard you on your on the uh, Athletic Football Podcast, you, you've said about your Bears, you're, I don't want to be where I am or where we are, but this is where we are, so we have to discuss it. And, and it really feels like this organization, specifically with Teddy, has made this harder than it needed to be. And now we're in a situation where we are looking to draft someone either at eight or move up. You know, they've made it pretty clear that they want to get a quarterback. But now Teddy's the veteran in that quarterback room, maybe for a year, maybe for six weeks, you know, I mean, as a starter or whatever. And I'm just curious, you mentioned the quarterbacks that were getting into this league. Like, have they have they botched this? Do, I mean, if they, if they have to keep Teddy in the quarterback room and bring a guy in, like, do you think this is this has been I don't know problematic? I guess I don't think so because they still have an avenue to find one. If it doesn't happen at eight, you have to trade up to three. I mean, let's say you have to give away your twenty twenty two first rounder to move up from eight to three. If you end up getting your quarterback in that transaction, you're never going to think about it again. And you're never going to think about the 15 or so million that Teddy Bridgewater is owed this year. It's not as if they've gone so far astray that they've doomed themselves over the next couple of seasons. I don't think that's the case at all. I just think that it's been a tiny bit harder and a tiny bit more muddled than it had to be if they had just said before last offseason, we're going to have a replacement level quarterback be the stopgap here. We're not going to spend any money on it. If you look at, like, for example, what Miami ended up doing, where they signed Ryan Fitzpatrick to, I want to say, a two-year, 10 or so million dollar deal to keep the seat warm there. That is what I would do if I wasn't sold on whoever I was bringing in free agency as the long-term answer. The history of free agent contracts given out to quarterbacks is a wasteland. Every single one that's been more than a bargain basement deal over the last five or so years has failed. Nick Foles, Case Keenum. The Kirk Cousins thing is, I think, a little bit different. But for the most part, These are deals that don't end up working out. Mike Glennon with the Bears, for example. So them going a little bit higher than that bottom rung, if they knew they would want a quarterback of the future a year from now anyway, that's where the timeline and the process and everything else gets a little bit dicey. But I don't think that they've gone so far the other direction that they can't kind of correct back and get where they want to go. You mentioned something there that if you get the quarterback, it's great. If you don't, this is a fan base and an organization that has never endured two bad years from a, from a quarterback. Like they've always, there's, there's always been somebody new coming through the door, somebody more capable coming through the door. It, I worry that in this draft with this limited contact, the limited games, everything that this, is this, is this the draft that you want to go and make that big swing because it can set you back a couple of years. I think it probably is because by all accounts, there are four guys who are worth being drafted in the top 10. You know, it's an interesting kind of exploration. It's something we talked about a little bit on the show we did with Mike Sando earlier this week. I think that we've come back around to a place where it's a good time to be searching for young quarterbacks. 
if you were trying to do that search between 2006 and 2016, you were going to end up disappointed for the most part. None of those guys worked out. And I think that that's a longer conversation about how we develop quarterbacks and what kinds of offensive coaches are in the league right now, all of that kind of stuff. But if you have Joe Brady and you have these four guys who clearly have first round talent, we can talk about Mac Jones if you want to, but four guys who are definitively being mocked in the top 10 by people I respect, that seems to be a nice convergence of things. This would be the time that you would want to try to develop a, co- a quarterback with talent under an offensive coach that you would trust to develop that quarterback. So the time should be right now, but it was always going to be right now with or without signing Teddy Bridgewater. So that's the problem. Yeah. I think that was something that we talked about a lot last off season was it felt like there was this muddiness in the moves that they were making, whether it was uh, whether they were on Matt rules, seven year timeline or on Marty Ernie's one year timeline. And now that they have all, both of the guys in charge, uh, are on are handpicked by David Tepper and David Tepper is kind of on the same page with all with both of those guys all three of them heading in the same direction they have that uh, that 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 ability to work together towards a common goal and it doesn't have to necessarily be this year uh, Matt Rule said on the press conference today they're not one player away and it did feel like last year they kind of felt like they were one player away at least in some of the moves that they were making when they were, when they were signing guys, like I think Robbie Anderson, they saw a little bit of a value in, but, um, but, you know, trading for a left tackle on Russell Okung, bringing in Teddy Bridgewater and then being so aggressive this off season. I agree with you, Robert, that had they just last off season said to themselves, we're going to go in with Will Greer, PJ Walker, maybe we'll draft a guy in the fifth round. We'll see what happens. And then if we're bad, we're bad. We have kind of a built-in excuse. There's COVID there's a first year head coach. Uh, but then they all kind of that that plan went sideways once Teddy came into the building. And I think there's something to be said for having both quarterbacks in the building at the same time. What if Teddy Bridgewater and a young guy? Um, I, I think that Teddy has the ability to be a good mentor. I mean, he's been he's been a first round pick. He's been traded. He's been uh, he's been a backup. He's been all over this league. He's a true professional. So if there is somebody that could help guide one of these guys, Zach Wilson, Justin Fields, I do think Teddy Bridgewater is somebody to do it. Um, But it's a matter of putting the right team around whoever the quarterback is going to be. And this, I think we're going to talk about free agency a lot. Um, I'm curious your thoughts on this bloodbath that we're all talking about is happening slash going to happen in free agency in the NFL right now. Um, Do you feel like, this is going to be a situation where you're going to see a lot of one-year deals, guys trying to get paid for this year and then move forward? Or do you think there are just going to be somebody you're going to want to get some guaranteed money and a little bit of a longer term? Well, first, let me I want to talk about the Okung and Teddy Bridgewater thing very quickly. Yeah. Because I think that it's easy to say you could roll with Will Greer and you didn't, you didn't need to make the trade for Okung. And if you want to just trade, trade Turner for picks, whatever else, that's fine. But I also think that when you're stepping in as a new regime, you want to be able to evaluate your roster in good faith, in a way that gives you a chance to evaluate that roster. And I think that that requires baseline levels of quarterback play and, in turn, baseline levels of protection to allow that quarterback to function. And left tackles aren't available. It's just hard to find them. So to get one back that's a functional piece in that trade I think does make sense, even if monetarily – it doesn't seem to compute with where your timeline is. And then I think Teddy is one of those, if you look at it, it's easy to say they shouldn't have signed Teddy Bridgewater. But I think that having Will Greer play quarterback all year doesn't allow you to necessarily evaluate the pieces on your roster. I think you can go and get a guy like Case Keenum and pay him $8 million a year instead of 20 and probably accomplish what you're trying to. But it's not like there were six to eight options in that range available in free agency last year. So it's easy to bury them, but I can understand what the thinking was even if it's a tiny bit problematic for me. So coming back to the one-year deals, I do think we're going to see a lot of that. I absolutely think we're going to see a lot of younger guys, you know, in the Romeo Aquara, Hassan Reddick sort of group of guys saying, I played really well last year. I don't know. Let's say hypothetically, you're Romeo Aquara. You're hitting free agency at whatever he is, 25, 26 on your second deal. You had 10 sacks last year in a semi-part-time role. And it was your first big season. Do you want a deal that's going to pay you $7 million a year over the next three years? Or do you want a one-year $9 million deal that allows you to try to hit the market again when things come back? You probably say the latter. 
And I think there are going to be a lot of guys in that spot. And I also think there are going to be a lot of guys who get cut who might be in that spot who say, I want just to land somewhere, have a chance, pick the best place for me to rebuild my value and we'll figure out what things look like in 2022. Because my understanding is that a lot of people think the cap will rebound in a pretty big way after the TV money ends up coming in. They'll probably do something to make it a little bit smoother so there isn't just a big jump and then some of the issues and having a one-year hit, all of that stuff. But I do think that guys will be looking to rebuild their value and cash in next year when things are healthier, yes. I still think it's very difficult to tell what this organization wants to do in free agency because, Josh, you mentioned that they were on different tracks before, but I, this team a month ago was just, just finished just behind the Rams trading for Matthew Stafford. That is a completely different trajectory to me than if you're getting any of these guys, particularly if you're getting the, maybe the third quarterback in this in this crop. Like the, the timeline for when you would expect to win is completely different. I'm curious to see if David Tepper has kind of relented on the QB hunt for the, for now. Not saying you don't draft one or try and get one, but um, I, I, I just I'm, I still don't believe that we know where they want to go ultimately. I think the Stafford thing is fine. You know, I think that the Stafford it, Stafford's availability was a unique circumstance for a lot of teams. Washington was in on Matthew Stafford, but Washington has said openly and privately that they're not desperate for a quarterback. They don't feel like they have to find their guy this year. I think Stafford was a unique enough proposition and a unique enough opportunity that teams that wouldn't feel pushed to find a quarterback would have been interested in Matthew Stafford. Because while the timeline of a Matthew Stafford and a Justin Fields are slightly different, you can talk yourself into three to four to five high quality years from Matthew Stafford at the end of his career. And that is a window. That is an era of your franchise. So I think that the Stafford thing shouldn't be misleading. I don't think we should look at teams interested in Stafford and read into the idea that they are demanding a change at quarterback this year. Yeah. I, I think that the, um, the you're, you're right. I mean, I think that the problem with both of these guys with Stafford and with Deshaun Watson is the timeline, I think, for making that move and making that decision, I think it's running up like Monday when the tampering period opens. Because I think that obviously you can still be in the market for Deshaun Watson, and if the Texans call right before the draft and want to make that move, I think you're still interested. But at the same time, I think the Panthers specifically wanted to make that move now so they could go into free agency saying, okay, we don't have this first-round pick. We don't have next year's first-round pick. We don't have whoever we traded for Deshaun Watson, but we do have a quarterback, and we probably need to make some moves in order to, because our window is open right now. And the fact that it hasn't happened yet, and obviously there's still four more days before free agency happens, personally, I, I don't think it's going to. Everything that we hear is that the Texans are not, going, are not even picking up the phone. Uh, regarding Deshaun Watson, so I, I I don't know Robert if you heard any differently, but that's that's the that's kind of the read from me is that you just there's there's not there's just not a lot of action happening and they're willing to wait it out, um, and so I think the Panthers may have to just kind of move forward with the thought that Deshaun Watson is not on the table and then uh, adjust accordingly later. I mean, I think that if you look at some of the numbers, it'd be possible for them to make that trade a little bit later in the process. Teddy Bridgewater's cap hit is like $22 million, right? Mm -hmm. and if they trade him, I think it's only $10 million in dead money. Watson's cap hit this year is like $15 million because it's only his base salary and then it jumps next year. So if you wanted to go through all of free agency with Teddy's contract there as a placeholder, you could trade Deshaun Watson on, for Deshaun Watson on April 15th and still fit it in financially after making a lot of your moves because the money is almost identical. It's not even if it wasn't, even if it was $10 million difference, you could still figure that out to some extent. So I don't think they need to figure anything out now. I think that that's the type of move that you could fit in a little bit later. And if you're, if it's April 15th and you were considering drafting a quarterback with the eighth overall pick or making a move up to get a quarterback, it's not that much different if you use that pick and some others to trade for Deshaun Watson instead of drafting your own. So I don't think that it needs to happen on any sort of timeline. I think it's the sort of move that if the opportunity presents itself a month from now, nothing should stop you from doing it. I just think the Texans would be mostly motivated to do it by the draft. I know that's what, you know, John McClain has said. If, if they're going to do it, it would, it would be, you know, he's, he's advocated for right before the draft. Because if you do it post-draft, if you're the Texans, what have, what have you got? You know, you would like – I think you'd want to flip it. So, I do think I, – I, I do tend to agree that there's a bit of a timeline. At the same time, 
you take the call if it comes in August, if it comes in September, you take the call whenever, uh, whenever it comes for Deshaun. But I do, you know, we've talked a little bit about the one-year contracts. Do you think, do you guys think this roster is where we want it to be, to, to be trying to do? I'm not like, not like all the one-year contracts are all in, but I think I'd be more interested in trying to find some guys that may be on a little bit longer deal because I think that this roster isn't where you would want it to be quite yet. Yeah, I, th- I think guys under 30 that you can sign to a three-year deal that that might be a little bit under their value, that they can deliver by better value in years two and three of that deal. Obviously, that's that's kind of the goal all the time. But this year specifically, especially if you if you don't think you're ready to be uh, competing in 2021, that would be the goal. But I, yeah, that's that's you, where I'm at. Do you think there's gonna be less of those opportunities, Josh? Um, I don't know. I honestly don't know. I think there's such a it's such a question mark to me about how the next week is going to go. It kind of feels like it's going to be a little bit of a standoff, like where there's two got like like in a fight outside of a bar where everybody's kind of like hold you know like hold me back and they kind of like well uh, like where it's where there's a lot of like gesturing and moving around and circling each other before things start to happen. And and I wonder how active that tampering period is going to be. Um, especially, I mean, I've, the Panthers already made their big free agent signing and it's Taylor Moten for $14 million. Like that, I, they're not, it's not going to be anything close to that amount of money. Robert, let me ask you this with the cap going down instead of up, how are teams going to attack free agency this year? I don't think teams will drastically change in their organizational approaches. I do think that the sorts of players available might be a little bit different. You know, for in most years, there's a reason guys hit free agency. And there's a reason why spending free agency is typically pretty dangerous. This year, I wonder if a different class of player might come available because of the financial circumstances around the league. But there are guys who are going to be getting cut that just wouldn't get cut in a typical circumstance. So if you're a team with a little bit more money, are you in a better spot to chase some guys who could be building blocks and foundational pieces when those types of players typically aren't available? But other than that, I, I think that based on what I've heard, a lot of teams that have cap space are probably going to be willing to spend. There aren't that many teams that don't have a lot of cash on hand. It might be a little bit more conservative, even though they have cap space. So for the most part, I think the teams who are usually spenders are probably going to spend. The teams who aren't spenders are probably going to be a little bit more conservative. So that's just what I've heard so far. But I don't know if overall approaches are going to change drastically because of the circumstances. Typically, we associate free agent spending with teams that don't do it very well. Uh, you know, perhaps the Jets come to mind. But the Bills have recently been very successful. Is this, is this something that you think um, other teams will be trying to emulate, or do you think that um, you think this is something that, j- that should not be tempted? <laughs> I think it's okay. I think if you look at the ways they've spent their money, there are lessons to be learned, and I think the Panthers can learn some of those lessons. You know, look at some of the areas where the Bills have spent. They've hit that sweet spot of like six to ten million dollar contracts, especially on defense. And I think that that's where I would do a lot of my free agent spending if I had the money. I would try to plug holes with short-term deals, especially in rotational places, right? Interior defensive line, secondary. Try to just find guys to plug holes and use it to patchwork units or a unit on defense. When I'm talking about defense, where injecting new talent and making it fresh and avoiding stagnation is really important to have consistent success. And if you look at where the Panthers are, they need safety help. They need interior offensive lineman help. And I think that's what we've learned from the Bills. I don't think if you have $60 million in cap space, you should sign three guys that make $20 million a year. I think you should sign 10 guys who make $6 million a year. That, to me, is the way that you use free agency to your advantage. And I think that the Panthers are in a spot where they can patch up some whole position groups with the amount of space that they have. Um, do you, I feel like this year would be a great year to be like, to be the, the bucks or the chiefs or the, the team that is like ready to ready to compete for the Super Bowl at that high level, because there are going to be so many guys out there that are just available for, even if it's 2 million less than they usually are, maybe they're willing to sign a one-year deal, almost like headhunters, um, that you could go out and get. And just like what the Bucks did last year with uh, Antonio Brown, Lenny Fournette, 
all those guys that they brought in um, to push them over the top. I feel like that would be a really good place to be uh, in the NFL this year. That, that's just me anyway. Possibly. But I also think that on lesser teams, you could have more opportunities. You know, if you're not a rotational guy as a pass rusher, let's say you're the third pass rusher on a contender, but if you sign for the same amount of money, you could be a starter on a middle tier team and have a better opportunity to rack up some numbers and rebuild your value to hit free agency the following year. Those are all things you have to take into consideration. I mean, it's not only the visibility that comes with being on a good team and the chance to win a championship, but if you're a 26-year-old, 27-year-old guy who is more interested in the next five years of your career than whatever's going to happen in 2021, then you're thinking about that as going to be a little bit different. Is Curtis Samuel as popular around the NFL as he is in Carolina and on Twitter in general? <laughs> I think that people are interested in him. Uh, I think that it's going to matter. The price is going to matter. Yeah. You know, however many guys, however many teams are out there, again, is he going to be a, somebody who's $12 million a year or is it going to be $9 million a year? And that kind of gap matters, I think, when it comes to free agency. So it's always interesting. You know, you look at wide receivers especially, and you look at the guys that have succeeded and the guys that haven't, and it often requires an ability to project what a change in role and what an uptick in opportunities can do for a guy. You know, there, that position has been pretty fruitful in free agency. It's been some of the best deals, in my opinion, that have been signed over the last four to five years. When you think about guys like Robert Woods or Marvin Jones or Cole Beasley, it's, you can do really well in that area and that range at that spot. And I think Curtis Samuel has a chance to be one of those guys. Yeah, as a, as a, uh, as a listener of the Athletic Football Show, I know that that 8 to $12 million wide receiver range is, is, is a real sweet spot. Um, I know you and Jason were talking about that on the last episode, and it's, I mean, it, it's, it's absolutely true. The stuff that you guys were talking about was fascinating in terms of um, where to find bargains and, and where – I thought that the, the discussion about how signing offensive linemen is sometimes viewed as a difference maker when in reality they're just kind of like the, the skill players are, are going to end up being the difference makers on a lot of teams – um, and I, this for a team that has three holes on the offensive line in Carolina, um, I think that they're going to end up spending most of this allotted free agent money on the interior line. Um, and do you, are there some guys out there that you think might be some good bargains, uh, at, at guard, maybe at like a swing tackle, um, in terms of free agent offensive linemen? I do. I mean, I think that if you look at some of the guys who, again, were on the bills, I mean, John Feliciano is just a plug-and-play starter. How much is Gabe Jackson going to make now that he's, I believe, approaching 30 or there and was just released? I think interior offensive line and guard specifically is a really good place to be shopping in free agency because all you need there is quality starters. You need guys who clear a certain bar because that's more about having a decent player than having a great player. That's more important, is having somebody that allows your offense to function. And there are a lot of guys out there that I think would fit that bill this year. You, you talked about spending and um, positional spending you guys were talking about. Um, I'm curious, how if you were building a team, how do you prefer? Do you want to pay the guys that touch the ball or do you want to pay the guys that don't touch the ball as in terms of your, your defense and you know, maybe your offensive line? Because we obviously see different teams you know, take different approaches here. I think it's about scarcity. And if you look at the types of players who are available on the open market, the two spots that guys just aren't available ever are left tackle and quarterback. So that's something where if I had one, I would pay one and, and I would try to draft them more than find them in free agency, just because the history of those spots is just really, really terrible. So, but if you look at other positions, I think that there, you can make an argument for both sides. You know, I, at this point, would tend not to overspend on pass catchers simply because I think there are so many of them out there. I think they're really important and having good ones is really important. But I also like, for example, the Dolphins have the third pick in the draft, right? I mean, there were some mocks, which I know are silly sometimes, but there were conversations a couple months ago with Devontae Smith was going to be the third overall pick in the draft. That's insanity to me. I would just under no circumstances, unless it's Julio Jones, would I ever, ever do that. I would trade that pick 100 times out of 100 if I were Miami, pick up an extra first and just keep trying to build my roster. If you look at some of the guys that have hit at wide receiver over the past few years, 
Chris Godwin was a third-round pick. Kenny Galladay was a third-round pick. There are those guys available. The baseline level of wide receiver play coming into the NFL has never been higher than it is right now simply because of the way the sport has changed at lower levels. I mean, you talk to coaches at the college level. I remember a story last year where I talked to Josh Gaddis, who's the offensive coordinator at Michigan, and he coached Chris Godwin at Penn State as the receivers coach and Jerry Judy at Alabama. And he said there's just no question. The, there's guys are so much better and more aware at how to understand coverage concepts and how to understand route trees and everything. So I just think that those having those guys is important, but I would never pay one $20 million in free agency and I would never take one in the top 10. So that's the thing. It's not which of these spots matter in building a really good football team. It's which of these spots have scarcity at those positions and understanding when you should pay up and when you shouldn't for them. And then the other side of it, I would not pay on defense. I mean, I just, I would never build, if I were building a team from scratch, I would try to find corners first and maybe one pass rusher, but I would never want to be a team in the top five in defensive spending unless I had already found a top flight quarterback and I had some really cheap deals on offense. Like Tampa Bay didn't spend in the way I would in the abstract, but that's only because they had so many rookie contracts in the secondary. So they're in the bottom five in secondary spending, but that's only because they haven't had to pay any of those guys yet. So I think it's kind of difficult to say, all right, this has worked in terms of what the pie chart looks like. Let me follow the pie chart because every circumstance and every situation is a little bit different. Do you think that's going to be the new thing? It seems like every few years there's a new, there's, you know, whether it's big corners or there's a, there's a model that other teams in the NFL try to follow. Do you think that Tampa is going to be that, that model going forward? The one thing you could probably take from Tampa and also I think from Kansas city to a certain degree, I would, there are teams that would draft quarterback every single year. And that was like the green Bay's thing for a little while, just take the dice roll. Mm -hmm. I would use a second to third round pick on a defensive back pretty much every single season because the, the depth there is so important. And again, defense is so volatile from year to year that I think it's really important to make conscious and intentional decisions to inject new talent into your defense as often as possible, whether that's finding a new fourth corner at one year, six million and trying to shop in that area of free agency constantly or every single year saying, I want to find, it doesn't have to be in the second or third round. Let's say it's the fourth round. I want a six foot, 205 pound cornerback that can play physical press man coverage. And that's the number one thing about what he does well. That those are just the types of areas where I would be constantly trying to add pieces because you can just never have enough of them. Are you trying to make that jump from the, uh, the Mike Mayock jump from media to front office? Is that, that Jesus that's Christ. No, no, <laughs> I, no, I, I've, my job is very easy and very fun. And the only stress that comes with it is the stress I put on myself to do a good job. And I very much enjoy that. My job is already more visible than I would ideally have it. Unfortunately, it comes with the territory. It has to be visible for me to have any sort of success or make money. So <laughs> Isn't that kind of uh, fun when your job is like when you you put that undue stress on yourself? I, I'm sure we all do it where you kind of just say like you kind of take a step back. My wife says it to me all the time like do you really need to be freaking out about this? Like who's going to be mad about, at you if you don't get this done in the next two hours? And it's like well I'll be mad. That's the only one. That's the only person. I mean it's constantly what I'm thinking about. I mean I, I'll just be like laying in bed. And I'll just roll over and I'll like tell my girlfriend, like, oh, I had this idea for who I want to have on the podcast like three weeks from now to do this mm -hmm. like really weird thing. And she'll be like, that's cool. And, that, <laughs> yeah. and that's it. I mean, yeah. it's so it's yeah, I mean, that's always how it is. It, but if, if it were up to me, if no one could know who I was at all and I could talk about football and get paid the same amount I get paid now to do it, I would rather have that be the reality of it. Like that's that to me would be so much better than this situation or like an uptick of this situation. I would love to be able to do my job with total anonymity. Are you saying that things are better before social media? Is that, is that kind of what you're implying? <laughs> I, I think that I would be much better and be much happier if I had grown up in a pre-social media world. Yes. <laughs> I, I think that's the word that, that sentence that could be tattooed on everybody. It's uh yeah. 
the that sounds like an offensive line coach is like just talk about football all the time but never have to be in the public eye like it's every single team it's always like hey uh could i could i get like a few minutes to talk to the offensive line coach and it's like well I, i'll ask him but uh and then he, he's usually not around i know that's the nice part about the super bowl is they have to sit there and they're usually <laughs> the best people to talk to it's true that they, they uh they like can barely contain themselves from cursing like that's my favorite part it's just like they're always right on the verge of being like, yeah, I mean, I was – well, I was telling, and they always like they get, they get that upper register. It's great. You mentioned the Super Bowl. I'm curious. We watched Tom Brady do it. I don't think many of us thought he was going to do. Did, did anything change for you, kind of your evaluation on him or kind of the him versus Belichick angle um, and what kind of he's meant to, to teams? Yes. I mean, I think it was before the Super Bowl. To me, it was just what he did this year. I mean, you look at them being the number one offense, I believe, by both EPA per play and maybe offensive DVOA over the second half of the season. To do that at 43 years old is absolutely absurd, no matter how good the players around you are. I definitely respect Tom Brady as a quarterback and think more highly of him as a player after what he did this season than I did before this season started. And that has nothing to do, really, with winning or losing the Super Bowl. If they had lost that game, I would still feel the same. Because to me, it's more about the body of work he put on the field this year. I, I, feel, I feel very much the same. I'm trying not to get kicked off this Panthers podcast by praising a buck too much. But <laughs> other than that, uh, no, I feel, I feel the same way. And it's crazy. This guy has six Lombardis. And I feel like somehow seven like, was a fundamental change for the way I viewed this guy. Like I felt like I had the narrative wrong on him. And now it, it seems a little bit more, more crystal clear exactly what he's bringing. It almost felt like seeing him in a different uniform was necessary for me to see him a little bit differently. When you watch him in New England, it was just so easy for him to kind of fade into the Patriots-ness of it all. And having him move spots, I felt like I watched him differently. I just I, My eyes didn't glaze over when I was watching Tom Brady because you had to recalibrate your expectations a little bit. I want to say, I can't remember when it was, what game it was after, it might have been after the first Panthers game when he played really well. And I, we were talking about it on our show, me and Nate, afterward. And I said, I forgot how good Tom Brady is. Like, it's just, I think it was easy to do. And then you watch him play the position. And it's like, oh, yeah, he's a perfect quarterback. Like the movements and what he looks like in the pocket and his ability to navigate that space, just how efficient everything is. I mean, he plays it at a level that very few guys have ever done it before. And again, I think I just lost sight of that a little bit because – it's hard to get excited about New England 20 years into whatever it was. I think that's just human nature. And I feel like now I look at guys differently too because, I mean, this is a guy that comes in and walks the walk. And, and you know, locker room leader and things like that get, get tossed around. And as, you, as we bring it back to the Panthers, you know, guys like Sam Mills and Thomas Davis who's retiring, you know, his number today. These guys that everyone in the locker room respects that show up and work every day you, I, I don't think until I watched Brady win this role that I truly appreciated how valuable that was to a team. And that's something that a coach I don't think can bring. I think it has to be a player. I, I totally agree. And I think that it's really important to think about the little individual worlds that exist within your locker room. So like with, I think a really good example is what happened in Cleveland last year. Okay. So we talk all about, Kevin Stefanski coming in and the offensive system and everything else. I think they would tell you that bringing Case Keenum in to be in that room with Baker Mayfield was a part of that equation that no one else is really thinking about. And just having somebody who's done this for so long and succeeded, I think, kind of in similar ways to, to the way Baker Mayfield wants to succeed, even though Case Keenum was undrafted. I think that if Case Keenum had come along 10 years later and had the career he had at Houston, he probably would have been undrafted. There wouldn't have been those questions about how the air raid fits into the NFL, everything else. He's kind of an undersized guy, chip on his shoulder type person. I think having that guy sit there every day with Baker Mayfield and be like, this is how I watch. This is what time I get here. This is what I'm looking for. This is how I chart. That stuff matters. You know, every guy I've ever talked to about your individual meeting room has always stressed the importance of having a veteran presence in that room to show you just the way to be a pro, the way to study all of those things. And when the guy at the top of that entire food chain is the guy that's the best example of that, that stuff matters. It undeniably does. Josh, you're on mute. 
Oh, I'm unmuted now, baby. I got stuff to say. Sorry, Bernie. Matt Rule press conference? What's going on? Why are you? <laughs> Bernie had thing. Bernie wanted to bark. We weren't talking about special teams enough, so I, he really wanted to get his voice heard. Um, so I had I had to put myself on mute. Um, but put bring uh, just continuing the thread of the Panthers is like when you talk about quarterbacks. If you bring in a young quarterback to learn under Teddy Bridgewater, who for all intents and purposes was that type of guy in that locker room was the guy that told you how to watch film that was staying late, that was getting there early, that if you can bring in somebody young in the draft this year to learn under him, and then you really do kind of fulfill the, 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 the idea of that bridge contract of this is the second year. Maybe he starts a few games, then the rookie takes over, whatever has to happen. And then he kind of moves on gracefully. And then he would have, you know, lived out that purpose. And I do think that that, if they may have backed into it a little bit, but that plan to me makes a ton of sense um, in Carolina. I think it depends on how much Teddy Bridgewater wants to be that guy. Hmm. I don't know enough about him. Everything I've ever heard about him is he's great. People love him. I remember in, I spent a decent amount of time in those locker rooms in New Orleans when he was there. And that seemed to be the consensus from the people there and from the players there is they really liked him. So maybe he would be open to that idea, but that's where the contracts and everything else, that dynamic matters. You know, when my dog is sneezing, when you're, (laughs) they're part, they're part of the show. It's fine. (laughs) When you're making $7 million a year and you are the backup and you know, you're the backup, it's much easier to fall into that role of being a mentor and being an influence in the room and everything else. You understand that's part of the job description. If you thought you signed that deal in Carolina because you were going to be given a real chance to be the starter, you might be a little bit pissed off that they drafted a guy eighth overall. You might not be quite as motivated to help him eventually take your job, which that's not even an indictment of Teddy Bridgewater. If he does end up doing it that way, that's completely natural as a reaction. That makes total sense. And I want to switch gears completely. And I want to talk about um, Grantland Fantasy Island for a minute. Um, (laughs) A lot of folks may not know this, but uh, Robert Mays was my editor at one point for the first time that I ever had anything published um, on a, on a national, on like a, on a, on a big level. And um, I just wanted to ask you your memories of a young Josh Klein, (laughs) if there were any, I I you have enough time to talk. About. That's that that entire I I literally first of all I can't believe we did that. <laughs> I I was talking to Simmons this week and we were just doing like, like reminiscing because this what's the date? Today's March 10th. So three days from now will have been 10 years to the day that I moved to LA to work at Grantland. And we were just kind of talking about how crazy it is it's been 10 years and just like the type of stuff we did back then that we would just never, no one would ever try now. No one could ever get away with now. Like the way we consume the internet is just so different than it was then. And so, I mean, I was completely unqualified to be doing that job at that point, I guess is one thing to say. I was 23 years old. I, I, I still like the whole year is just a complete whirlwind. I remember editing those in like his office at night it would just be like a late, late night and I would have finished all the other work I was doing and I was just slogging through all of these entries <laughs> from writers. And it was, it was fun. I, it, it's still weird to me that that entire experience even happened. And I, so you mentioning it just brings back some very strange memories. It's a very weird time for all of us, I think. 23 and just having moved to LA and staying up late and editing fantasy football columns um, from idiots mostly um, is, is sounds like a real dream. <laughs> I, that year was, we published on an East coast schedule at Grantland and I did a lot of the logistical stuff. So I would code stories and I would get them ready to publish and everything else. Just the type of grunt work you do when you're 23, but we published on an East coast schedule and we didn't have East coast editors. So I would have my alarm for like three forty-five in the morning pretty much every single day and I'd wake up to it in bed I'd roll over at that point I didn't have real furniture I had a, an, an air mattress that was like on like a little stakes so you buy it it was like a bed that unfolded but it was still an inflatable mattress this was before I bought Actually, actual furniture the ladies and love it when you bring them back to an air mattress let me tell you there were no ladies going back to that apartment <laughs> in, in, in Hollywood back then I it was a terrible situation I was very young and stupid but I remember just rolling over on that like deflating air mattress and just 
punching up whatever we needed to do and hitting publish and then just rolling over and going back to sleep every single morning. I, it was a long, long year with our skeleton crew trying to put together a website with like six staffers, which people don't know. I mean, there were legitimately less than 10 of us to create that entire thing for the first year that Grantland existed. Well, it was incredible. For people that don't know, Grantland used to be, uh, if, you're, if you're younger, uh, was a part of ESPN.com and Robert Mays is part of it. It was run by Bill Simmons and they, they did a Grantland Fantasy Island uh they did you got was it a contest i don't even remember how it started it was a contest it was yeah. a contest it was bill's idea which uh, all of the ideas back then were bills and the, the we were trying to figure out how we wanted to write about fantasy football we didn't have a big a big staff and we didn't know how to do it so his idea was that we would have a contest where we would solicit entries from readers and they would compete to be our fantasy writer and they would send in entries and like I had to curate the entries and like how they were done and pick the best ones. And it, again, it was extremely weird. It just would never happen now, but it, we just did it. And back then I never understood. I mean, the reason was that Bill did such a good job of kind of shielding us from the ESPN stuff. We really felt like we could do whatever we wanted, which when you work for Walt Disney is an insane thing to think. But at that point, it really did seem like we could. And that's just the type of really weird, wild stuff that we used to try back then. Yeah, well, we, uh, there, there are some, uh, the, the email threads that would go out between all the writers because there were, there were 10 of us that would submit to Robert every week. And then there would be like a two-day period where it would be like, ooh, I hope mine gets picked. Like, oh, here we go. And then, and then when it would come out, it would just be like, oh, like it would be a lot of fun. So uh, I, I was so thankful. many bad Bill Simmons impressions. So many. <laughs> yeah. It's just like mo- what most of them were. Because at that point, I mean, in 2000, from like 2007 through 2012, that's what most of the writing on the internet was, was bad Bill Simmons impressions. So I don't fault anyone for taking that approach, but there was a lot of it back then. You know what, though? I respected it. There were a lot of big kind of stylistic swings in those entries where people were really going for stuff. And it was horrible a good chunk of the time. But every once in a while, people, one of you guys would connect on one of those swings and it would actually be pretty fun. So I'm going to assume I did most of the connecting, obviously. I, I, mean, I remember you doing a very decent job. I, thank you, you were right there. You were right there in the thick of it with everyone else. That was Very decent is a great way to describe my writing style. And I appreciate I was say, that. If you could put a number on it, like what would the batting average be in terms <laughs> oh, of how many was- times he connected? He was doing a good job. I, I'd say he was like a consistent seven out of ten. Here we go. And I want—I can't we're, remember the. Now I we're moving. The names of the other ones that were there. There was Matt Borkus was it, was one of them, and yeah. he eventually got hired to be an intern at Grantland. And then there was a guy named Shane. Yeah, Shane Morris. He was good. Shane Ram- Morris. Ramon Ramirez. I liked him. Names, Josh. Don't pretend like you Ramon, don't remember names. You can Ramon rap. No, I, I know them all. Yeah, I'm still friends with them. <laughs> or I'm at least Facebook friends. So I like yeah. I follow them on Twitter. God, I can't, 10 years. That, that, the fact that, that it was 10 years ago now is just so wild. I, I just can't even believe any of that. But no, it does you, did a great you did a great job. Thank you, did you a great so job. much. That, thank you. So that was the whole reason for having you on the podcast was this seg- I didn't even record any of it. I'm just, this is just for me. I'm going to, this is all just going straight to my wife. And I'll be like, listen, I, a decent job and a great job. Those are the kind of compliments I'm looking for. And weird. He said the word weird several times when he was describing all of this. So that's fair. That was, right. that was not Josh's fault. It being weird was more just a product of the overall circumstance and idea than anything that he did specifically. <laughs> uh, one thing I do want to bring up, uh, Matt Rule did speak to the media. Is there anything of interest that should be brought up with that, Josh? I don't think so. I think we kind of covered most of it. Uh, okay. like well, just it be, it Teddy should... is a true professional. Teddy Bridgewater is a true professional. Just like, just like I was decently good at writing – Teddy Bridgewater is a is a true professional. We do we we are acknowledging the quarterback in the room today, so at least that did happen. That's yep. a plus. Let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> um, and before we get to the game, one thing I do want to ask Robert is just when it comes to Deshaun, whatever the cost is, and whatever a team, whatever whatever it is, is he is he going to be worth it? Yes, I mean I just he's to me the second most valuable player in the NFL when it comes to trade chips. If I were stacking, if I were doing like an NFL trade value contracts, even included, I think he would be number two. I think Mahomes would be one clearly. 
And I think that Watson would be number two. I don't know even how, who else you could put there that would be similar. Maybe Russell Wilson would be there at his age, but I mean, you could trade for Deshaun Watson and have him be your quarterback for the next decade, like legitimately have him play at a near MVP level for 10 years. You can't put a price on that. I, I think that it would never get to this point just because if they were going to trade him, they would, their leverage would be diminished enough where they wouldn't have to ask for this much. But if I were a team and I was really sitting there thinking about it and the Texans said, we want each of your next five first round picks, I would do it. I mean, if you look at what he would overcome and what he would patch up as a player for the rest of your organization, and you let's say three of those first round picks hit and let's say you end up being a team whose floor is like seven and nine because Deshaun Watson is your quarterback. I just think that's worth it. I think it's worth it every single time. So for me, it's more about are the Texans willing to give him up more than it is. What is another team willing to pay to get him? Because I think anyone should be willing to pay virtually anything. Are you a believer that you have to have the quarterback to win? Yes. I mean, I think, but, that, I, mean, like, but I mean, like, because you, you know, you talk about with Teddy in the past, like, you don't like the, you don't like the middle ground on the quarterbacks. So you, you think you, you need to have that, you know. I don't, I don't, I think that need is strong. I think you can win one without it. I mean, I think the Niners were five minutes away from winning one without like a top flight quarterback. But I think that to me is a, those are one year blips. I think you can bottle it for a year and potentially do it. But I think in order to be a consistent winner year in and year out, you absolutely do. Because on like the 49ers, using them as an example, right? I mean, they were the second best defense in the NFL. I want to say that season by DVOA. I think the, the Niners or the Patriots were number one. So that – don't mind, don't mind me. Hey, go lay down. I think that – He's talking That's to Josh, it. by the way. Yeah, I'll get Bernie <laughs> up here. We can have an all-dogs podcast. My, my dog just slurping water. If, if you look at it, I mean, they were a truly transcendent defense. But the second half of the season, they didn't play as well. And that defense no longer existed a year later. You know, DeForest Buckner had to be treated. You had guys get hurt. So if you take maybe the arguably the best defense in the NFL with, in my opinion, the best offensive schemer in the NFL, you can theoretically win a Super Bowl if things break your way in a given season. But I just think if you want to be a team that's right there at the brink every single year, having the quarterback at the center of it is the most important part of that, especially if you're the Panthers. Let's say they draft Justin Fields, okay? And let's say even Teddy, let's say Trey Bridgewater's there. Let's say Teddy Bridgewater's there. They find some offensive linemen this year. Their offense even takes another step. Let's say they're fourth in offensive DVOA this year, which they were eighth last year. They were a good offense. Then Joe Brady gets hired away. Then what do you do? And I just think having the quarterback at the center of it, having a truly great quarterback at the center of it, is the way that you can be relevant and be close to a contender every single year. There are other ways to do it. I just think those roads are a little bit harder to travel. Should we play a game? Yeah, let's do it. I love games. I hope Robert likes games. Um, this is going to be <laughs> jersey numbers. So with TD and Greg Olson retiring as Panthers this week with elite jersey numbers, but TD started with number 47 when he was drafted, which we can all agree is an ugly number for all involved. So what's your ideal number for the following positions? We'll start with linebacker. Colin, let's start with you. This is your brainchild. 46. 46? 46. For a linebacker, that's the, that's the worst that's, possible. No, answer. that's a terrible answer. I'm so glad you go. I'm so glad you went first. What's why? Why 46? Oh, because I because I because I read the thing wrong. <laughs> okay, that makes more sense. Because the correct answer is 56. 56 I, I, is yeah. the ideal linebacker number. If I'm a linebacker, I want 56 on the back of my jersey. Lawrence Taylor had it. Obviously, Jermaine Carter, who is the second court linebacker you think of whenever you think of court linebackers. Uh, Obviously. And that to me, like, because I, I, I grew up in New Jersey. Um, I, I got to go with 56. I would just like to point out that your, both of your reactions proved that I actually was correct in the question that I was answering. I was just answering <laughs> the wrong question. That's fair. I'll work on that. It's definitely the worst number. I, it's hard. 
I think any of the numbers in the 50s are probably okay. Um, 58 looks good. Like Thomas Davis made that look good for a long mm-hmm. time. I think 50 is okay. I think if you're a, a strong 50, you can make that work. I think Levante David looks really good in 54. The fact yeah. that Keekly wore 59 is still weird to me. It's just Agreed. like that didn't seem to align with how cool of a player he was. But any number in the 50s, I think you could probably get away with. To me, it's the, the issue is when you have like cornerbacks wearing numbers in the 40s. That's just – you are definitely getting cut if that is what your number is during <laughs> training camp. Yeah. Except hard. if you're Marlon Humphrey. Marlon Humphrey is the only exception to that rule. <laughs> what about if you're a wide receiver? I love 11. I just think 11 looks awesome. You, know, you think about Larry Fitzgerald. Julio, I think Julio would look good in everything. It's why I want to trade Julio places all the time because I just want to see him in a Ravens uniform. <laughs> just, every, every single time I think about it, I was just like, I just want Julio to wear all the cool jerseys. So I, I really do uh, – I've come around on uh, team numbers for wide receivers. I was always an 80s guy, but I, I've definitely kind of changed my opinion of that. 14 is terrible, though. Chris Godwin going to 14 is a travesty. Yeah. But I can understand why it had to happen with Tom Brady getting there. Yeah, I, I, I was always an 80s guy. I don't know why, but you're right. Like, the Panthers last year had no wide receivers with eight, with, in the 80s. It was it's all gone. in the teens. The era of the teens has arrived. The 80s are just out the window now. Who started that? Was that some – was it – was there like a – was there somebody – was it Larry Fitz that everybody was like, oh, look at how cool that 11 looks on Larry Fitz? Larry Fitz did that, and then I think that the 2011 draft – was um julio was 11 and yep. aj green was 18 mm. and like that era if you think back on that era like des was 88 so there was some still some remnants of that but i think since those guys came into the league like the stefan Diggs wears 14 now yep so all the cool guys wear teen numbers it's just how it's gone i will say 89 as a matter of personal safety that's fair yeah because <laughs> yeah if if steve smith if you're listening uh, we all agree it's 89 hands down nobody he made 89 look great he made yeah. 89 look very very cool again steve smith could wear anything again he was a he was a raven steve smith looked great in the uniform he looked great in all the uniforms Anquan bolden too we remember that it just wasn't as you know optimistic and upbeat as you made it sound <laughs> yeah. I, I probably enjoyed it more than you guys did <laughs> But it wasn't your blood and guts all over the place. That's why. <laughs> it was my blood and guts all over the fa- all over the place in the 2005 divisional round. That's uh, when my blood was. and guts were everywhere. Yes, it was. All right. How about O line? You're like a you're. This is good for you, Robert, because you're like an O line guy. I know that's you know. I think, I think it changes, right? So, I think 77 is a great number. Like Wyatt Teller looks great in 77. Mm. That's one I really like. I think Jake Long was 77 too, right, back in the day. So that's yep. a really good number. Um, I, I like uh, center numbers in the 50s. I think that those can work. I think if you're like a 51 or a 52 or a 53 and those, um, that can tend to be okay. Yeah, I'd say 70s numbers. Like an offensive lineman, like a left tackle wearing like, like Trent Williams in 71 looks good. Yeah. So I think anything, if you're avoiding the sixes, I think that's fine. Bakhtiari is the only person that can make 69 work. That's fair. Jordan Gross disagrees. <laughs> but then you have a, a jersey that says Gross and 69 on the back, and it's just like it sells a lot more than it should. That's all I'm saying. Like it, it, a lot more people were buying that jersey than, than, than were really big left tackle fans. With a lot more personality than most offensive linemen tend to have, both Jordan Gross and David Bakhtiari. <laughs> you do want typically i think i think you're right the 77 you want the slimming of the sevens yeah absolutely yeah that's where you gotta go that's why 71 looks great on trent williams you need those big flat numbers wasn't there a center that was wearing zero in the in college this year or in that should be illegal like like an actual crime there should be a statute (laughs) against that you should not be able to do that in any capacity so you don't i I will say though wearing single digits in college i'm pro Yes. That is always good. Like Derek Brown, I think he was two, right? Mm-hmm. It's two. awesome. That is That should happen in every possible turn. Offensive lineman doing it is an actual football crime. Big two. All right, last one, quarterback. Um, Around the other day. The answer is seven. <laughs> <laughs> but who have the good sevens really been? Elway? 
Steve Berline. It's just at seven. I don't know. I think it trans. I feel like seven. Like, if is it single digits? It's baseball and football. I feel like the 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 wires get crossed for me. At the risk of of bringing Brady back up, I think twelve has got to be in contention because that's that's a nice number. Although nine nine sounds nice as well. Now that I'm kind of picturing a quarterback, nine could be terrible depending on your font, though. Oh yeah, you could have a really bad. Nine. Like Stafford's going to be nine in that, on those Rams uniforms. That's going to. I, I think there aren't that many bad ways to go with quarterback. Like, it, like if unless you get up to the like nineteen, doesn't look good. Like yeah. Johnny Davis is the only one who's ever made nineteen work. But other than that, I think that you could probably be okay. Did Joe Montana wear nineteen, or he wear sixteen? Sixteen, right? Sixteen. Yeah, eighteen, right with the Chiefs. I'm trying to think of the the possible Panthers quarterbacks. Justin Fields wears two. Lance wears eight. Is that right? I think I, if if it was Lance and he wore eight and was the eighth pick, give it to him. I'm ready. That's 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 my pick. It's number. I also eight. think a lot of numbers look really good in the Panthers jerseys because when you have their colors are good and they have the block uniforms. Like the, yeah. that, having the block numbers gives you a lot of different options that tend to work when others wouldn't like 59 looked okay because it was the block numbers. And I think that's really important to take into consideration. You just made yourself a lot of, a lot of friends and a lot of fans here in Carolina. <laughs> I've always liked how those uniforms like that. I think that Julius Peppers is the coolest looking football player I've ever seen in my entire life. So. Yep. It's true. Yeah. Cause he doesn't look like a human at all. Yeah. He looks, he looks like some other planet almost. Uh, before we wrap up, Second half of the NBA season, I, we don't have time for a Hornets corner specifically, but give me, give me some sort of the Hornets storyline you're looking forward to this second half. Robert, you I, don't have to I do Hornets. Name, I could not name you more than two players on, currently on the Charlotte Hornets. I, <laughs> um, uh, my NBA watching has almost become like – not even like the way I watch baseball because I watch every Cubs game, but I couldn't tell you who any of the other people on any of the other teams are. Yeah. Well, I, I just have the Bulls on like my top TV now on mute while I'm watching like Top Chef or something because my buddy works for the Bulls and because they're playing really well right now. But I have just not, I've not watched any NBA games. Even after the football season ended, I just, my routine just does not involve the NBA for whatever reason recently. They're fun. Check them out. LaMelo, that's our guy. I, I would love to start watching. I mean, I, was, I love basketball. I mean, I was the biggest NBA fan for a long time and just, for whatever reason, now that I've started watching football full-time for a living all the time, and the basketball has gone to the wayside a little bit, I have to just switch up my routine. I'll get back into it. It'll be all right. I yeah. found myself in the bubble was when I, like, I, I hadn't watched it for, like, two or three years, but then it was just, like, it was on every night, three games, and they were always good. And it was just like, oh, I forgot how much I love the NBA, and now I'm, I'm right back in. Yeah, I got to do it. I just got to break through. I'll be all right. What you got, Colin? I know you got something to say. Uh, it's just exciting. We have a 19-year-old that I consider the most uh, untradeable asset in the NBA. I mean, I think that's that's a, a good starting place. I, you know, we talked about how much Tom Brady changed the culture for the Buccaneers. Uh, you know, we got a rookie coming in doing something similar, providing energy uh, that we have not had in quite some time. It's exciting. Remember, sports should be fun, right? That's sports right. should be fun. They are fun. All right, Robert, where can all the listeners find you on the uh, World Wide Web, Twitter, wherever you would like to be found? I, I, I don't, shouldn't even give out my Twitter anymore. I wish less people knew what my Twitter handle was, but it's Robert Mays, and uh, I'm on the Athletic Football Show three times a week. Uh, we had an episode today about with Jason Fitzgerald, as Josh alluded to, about uh, you know, the ways that free agency has worked for teams over the last few years. I think it's a really interesting listen especially as a chaser to the conversation we had with Lewis Riddick last week about how free agency is a treacherous place that typically leaves teams in tears. So we're trying to hit it from all angles. Uh, we'll be back on Friday with me and Nate Tice doing uh, some of our best under the radar free agents and scheme fits and kind of really digging into the weeds of this class more than we have so far. So when you have three shows a week during the off season, you can explore a lot of materials. So that's what we've been trying to do. You know, you guys didn't make me feel good talking about the Saints because you is much, everyone's thinking, all right, it's $100 million. It's got to be this year. But does it? If, if, they don't do, if they don't have to bite the bullet this year, I don't want to hear anybody complain about the cap ever again. Just go spend forever because they've been well, able to. The only, the only time the cap becomes a serious problem 
is when a huge chunk of your problems with it are dead money because you can't do anything with dead money. Everything else is fungible. Everything else can be moved around. And the Saints, while a good chunk of it is Breeze's dead money, for the most part, all those other contracts, they can do something with. So, I mean, you look at what's happening with Ramchek and Lattimore. I think both of those guys are slated to make between 9 and $10 million. You know, what kind of gymnastics can you do there? If you're willing to push some of that money into the second year, can you have a $3 million cap hit this year for those guys? Have an option bonus next year that prorates over years two through six. There's so many crazy things that you can do. And when you don't care about proration and you don't care about what dead money charges were going to look like and just understanding they're going to be part of your equation in three years, you can do whatever you want. And the Saints have shown that if you have cash and you're willing to eat it every once in a while, it can create small little advantages for you. And that's kind of where they are right now. You said they were the top eight in every positional group in spending. It's ridiculous. It's, I mean, you'd think every once in a while you'd have to make some sacrifices at one spot or another, but they have proven that's not the case. Salary cap is a myth. It's a myth. <laughs> it, is, it, it is a myth and it isn't. I mean, I think that, it, again, it all comes due at some point, and you, you are going to have things that take away from how you can build in future years and all of this other stuff. I don't think even people that are a little bit aggressive, purists, like are horrified by what the saints do. Like if you talk to someone in the green Bay front office about how the saints deal with contracts, they would, I don't even know what their response would be. They would just start crying. But even people who are in, in between and understand where aggressiveness can be beneficial to you would say that what the saints are doing is not how you want to do it. And so they may be able to get out of it, but there, there are trade-offs that they're going to have to make. I guess that's it, right? Oh, that, yeah, I it? guess so. The way yeah. To wrap, yeah, professionally <laughs> wrapping it up. I love it. That's how it is. So I was just in a trance talking to Ro- listening to Robert talk. That's just all it was. I'm Nikki704. He's Josh Line Rules. He's Colin CLC. This has been One Day Contract. Partner right Everyone, I have a hurricane. Listen to yourself. Turn world to the sun. Subscribe to the athletic. Subscribe to the athletic.